Dotnet Rocks episode 696 with guests James Dawson and Grace Mollison. Recorded live Thursday, September 8th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to Dine Rocks. Carl and Richard here. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm getting all the, the water out of my ears from that hurricane that we yeah, had last yeah. week. And power back at the house? Power back. How long was that? Over a week? Uh, I was without power for a week. Wow. And you want to hear a really funny story? Yeah. So after a week, I borrow a generator from a friend of mine. Now, I spent like three hours getting this generator because it was at a friend of his house who yeah. was, whose power had been restored, so I had to go pick it up. Yeah. So I asked Jay to help me because it's going to take at least two people to, care, to lift this thing on the They're truck. They're heavy. But the friend's got a truck. So we go there, and he's ass in the air inside the truck fixing something. Oh, no. And now we're standing around. He didn't have a hose clamp, so and he had a late radiator leak. Right. So the hose, the hose was too big for one clamp. So he actually put four hose clamps together. <laughs> <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this one. Oh my god, this is crazy. So Jay's <laughs> looking at his watch, you know, because he's got to get home for dinner. He's starving, and uh, his ass is in the air. This guy. And he's screw driving and all that stuff. So we finally get that there. An hour later, we get the generator on the truck, drive it over, you know, makes a horrible output of, it's a diesel generator, so horrible output of smoke and stuff. Yeah. But we finally yeah. get it rolling. Now I got to take him to uh, to the AutoZone to get a uh, to get a hose clamp. Right. So we drive down AutoZone. Now I'm taking more time here. I'm just trying to explain that a vast amount of time had has gone by. I probably spent four or five hours messing around with this generator. Yep. Getting cables and hooking it up and everything. Now I have sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is uh, the situation where you stop breathing in the middle of the night. And my sleep study said sometimes for 30 seconds at a time I will stop. Wow. So I wear the CPAP machine, which uh, blows air down my throat to keep my air passageway open so I don't snore and I don't stop breathing. It's a very common ailment, actually. So I need this to sleep. And I've been sleeping at the studio because we have power at the studio, right? This yep. is a great start. So so I plug in the CPAP. I'm at home, you know, get to sleep with my wife and everything's wonderful for the first week. And I'm almost asleep and bzzz. <laughs> the dies? <laughs> it dies. And it's raining outside and it's cold. You know, it's like I go out there in my, you know, my bare feet and I'm trying to start again. It goes for 30 seconds and dies. It's got plenty of oil. You know, it's not got vapor lock. I don't know what's going on. So I just like pack up my CPAP and go back to the studio again. The next day, the power came on. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to tell me we finally got back to the house to set up the generator and the power came on. No, <laughs> no, that would have been a blessing. You know, compared but to, yeah. It's like, you know, you know, we had enough. The generator ran the whole time we were playing darts to power the light. <laughs> and then as soon as I get almost asleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Better no framework. Hit me. So, you know, I've been talking about HTML5 tags. Yeah. And this is a fun one. Progress. It's a progress bar. What? Yep. Wow, I did not know this. There's a progress bar built into HTML5. HTML5 has a progress bar. And here's the catch. Not supported in IE or Safari. Huh. Only in Firefox, Opera, and Chrome. Okay. Yeah. But, and you know, I, I checked it out with Chrome, and it does work. And it's just something you can set with uh, the value with, a, with JavaScript and... Mm -hmm. It works great. It just moves it up and down. Yeah. Don't ever make a progress bar go back down. It makes people mad. Yeah. You're going to go use a progress bar, go forward. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the go to 99% immediately and stay there. Yeah, that's good. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> we have no idea how long this is going to take. Yeah, I don't know. Beats me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I built a few that went up to 75% and went back down to 50%. It makes people curse. It's, it doesn't matter how polite that person is. Once right. they see a progress bar go down, they get angry. You're on your own. <laughs> Hey, since we're in a storytelling mood, um, 
I got a Tom Bin bag for my stepdaughter. Ah, I love Tom Bin. Uh, I convinced her after showing her mine, and she could not find one fray of one seam. And I've had my bag now for what seven years? Seven years, yeah. That's you know, I've got a story around Tom Bin. You probably appreciate. I mean, I, I don't imagine the listeners can remember because I can barely remember. There was a time when I was brand new to .NET Rocks, you know, somewhere right. around show 100 or so. And right. I bought a brain bag myself. And I remember just mentioning it on the show that, you know, I was I had this huge laptop and no other bag would fit. And I found these guys in, in Port Angeles, Washington, making this bag. And my wife's in the clothing industry, so I at least know what good construction looks like. I was really impressed with the way this bag was built. And you know, and you got one, and we mm-hmm. kept talking about it and so forth. And it was, I don't know, three months later that the marketing manager of Tom Bin <laughs> phones me and says, who are you and what's a .NET Rocks? Because <laughs> so, apparently the listeners had been listening, and they started buying brain bags. And when they said, how did you find us? They click other .NET Rocks. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my sort of, oh, this is what it means when you have listeners. Okay. Yeah, and I think all of the all of our listeners who are speakers have Tom Bin bags. They all have Tom Bin bags now. Well, and I, we have, I have several different yeah. Tom Bin bags, and I lend them out occasionally, but I always want them back. They're the best. They are still the best bag I've ever used. And, and my brain bag, like your brain bag, it looks brand new after all these years. And I, I just got myself a Breve. B-R-E-V-E, which is a little uh, side pocket for an iPad or a, or a um, you know, a, a tablet PC or whatever. Oh, yeah. From Tom Bin, and it's awesome. It's very – I got it right here. It's just – it's got two zipper pockets in the front, and it's got a big zipper pocket across, and, of course – you know, it's very protective, and it will never, ever fall apart. Yeah, indestructible. Tom Bin's been a great supporter of Don Rice for a long time. We love you guys. Your products are awesome. Send us more. No. <laughs> <laughs> we need more. More products. Tom Bin, T-O-M-B-I-H-N.com. Well, Richard, who's talking to us? I got a comment off of show 693, which, if you recall, is the one where we did about Xamarin with Nat and Miguel. Mm-hmm. Good fun. And here's uh, Nick Porter's comment. Great episode, guys. I'm really enjoying listening to your podcasts. I had particular interest in this episode since I've been following the story of Xamarin closely before and since the transition away from Attachmate. Mm -hmm. Nat, Miguel, and their team have produced a truly great product. I'm interested in any input you might have, perhaps a future show, for mobile device application development using non-native clients. For example, the jQuery mobile, although it's still in beta, has a great feature set that I've been able to use with my MVC3 application. Of course, going into the future with HTML5 and CSS3, we will be able to create very powerful cross-platform tools and leverage our existing knowledge, code libraries, and databases. How will these match up with native applications? When using mobile device browsers, of course, we will likely lose features like GPS and device file access. Actually, that's not true, Nick. GPS is a lo- there's a location class in HTML5 browsers which will work with the GPS in your phone. It's all depending on how well that browser's been implemented on the phone, but you should expect that. And same with file access, there is actually storage mechanisms in HTML5. So there's a solution to those problems. Yeah. Uh, will the drawback of installing a new application on your mobile device instead of using the built-in browser be much of a factor? Yeah, I don't think so either because for the most part the app store is pretty darn painless. I think that's the strength of the mobile platform. Uh, and, of yep. course, any solution we look at, uh, what tool fits the business need best? Would you focus on browser-based application development or more towards native applications? Well, now, now I'm, let me contradict myself mm. after saying, hey, don't worry, HTML5 will do all those things great. We have learned over and over again in years and years of development that when you go for a generic application, you will be beaten by a native application. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the difference between Microsoft Multiplan, which nobody remembers, and Lotus 1.2.3, which everyone remembers. Mm. Right? Lotus 1.2.3 worked on the IBM PC and nothing else, where Multiplan had gone to great pains to run on all these different PCs, and nobody cared. <laughs> right? And I think this is the same problem. It, you know, Cross-platform development matters only to the developer who's building it. Mm-hmm. The customer couldn't care less. They want the best app for, the, for their platform. So there you go. I've contradicted myself. All like right. That. 
And Nick finishes with, thanks very much for all your hard work. I have learned a ton from listening to you and your guests and have since picked up some great books because of it. And I'm looking forward to your future episodes. And hey, Nick, for your great message, we're sending you a mug. So I'll be in touch to get that mug out to you. And if you'd like a mug, comment on a show. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, some other things we could have dug into, different directions. Doesn't matter. We'd love to hear you. .netrocks.com. Our guests today are James Dawson and Grace Mollison, both uh, considered DevOps. James is a consultant who loves hanging one foot in the operations camp and the other in the development camp. Seeing both sides of that equation really helps provide a complete view of the software lifecycle. James has his roots in IT operations, so when his career progressed into consulting over 12 years ago, it was natural for him to bring his experiences from that realm and apply them to the development space as well as bringing his obsession for automation and consistency to the software development lifecycle, he helps bridge the often fractious relationship between devs and ops teams to build more effective collaboration towards those common business goals. Grace Mollison also bridges the gap between infrastructure and development by supporting developers, implementing build processes, being a liaison between all parties on platform-related activities, and taking responsibility for deployment. In a word, she's a DevOps. Grace also has a slightly unhealthy obsession with public cloud solutions. Welcome, guys. Hello. DevOps. i got to admit, that's a term that I haven't heard, um, but it, it makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I first sort of came about it uh, late, late 2010, um, but I think it was originally coined back to sort of late 2009. There's, there's a guy uh, called Patrick Dubois, a Belgian, who I think is uh, sort of credited with coining it. Um, and there were some DevOps days, which you know kind of started out in uh, in Belgium as well, uh, where it kind of sp- spread from there, really. Um, hmm. So, I mean, in many respects, it's, yeah, and this is kind of some of the uh, things it gets kind of criticised for. Really, it's not it's not really anything new in some respects, but um, you know it's important because I think it's kind of given a a kind of a term to rally around. You know, the idea of you know life is better when uh, you know, dev and ops aren't bitch fighting. Um, you know, it's not it's not something new, but it's a perennial problem. Um, so, you know, it's useful, you know, to have, you know, that kind of common, um, you know, that common term, you know, to kind of rally around and, you know, kind of have people hopefully know what it means. But, you know, it does seem to be some, you know, sort of varying, you know, some variation. I'm not sure what kind of graces, uh, you know, sort of introduction to it was, but certainly mine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my, my my introduction was the fact that I've been doing it anyway. Uh, it is just a label as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it was, it was a, a natural thing to do to kind of sit between and bridge the gap and bridge, bridge both camps so you could do the work. And, and then when I actually um, started working with James and Howard Van Rugen, actually, um, I realised I wasn't alone because I'd up until that point, I'd kind of been a, a single person doing that role. And then to actually join the a consultancy where there were other people doing the same role. It was kind of a bit of an eye-opener, and I realised that, you know, it was a, a common-sense thing that I was doing anyway. Um, and it's just, um, like James, I kind of picked up on the term in sort of um, 2010, um, and it was just it just kind of was, oh, that's great, that's what I do. <laughs> now, both of you started in IT? Yes, I, I started off years ago as a really bad um, C programmer and then kind of evolved from there when I realized I wasn't going to cut the mustard for that. Yeah, so I, I, um, yeah, I got a job out of university working in, um, uh, um, it was just like an operations role at a law firm, um, initially VMS, and, you know, they migrated to NT, so that's kind of how I got into the Microsoft world. Um, and then, after about four years, decided to give kind of consulting a whirl. Um, and, yeah, I think it's kind of yeah, you know, sort of interesting kind of parallel, really. So when I joined that kind of consulting, I was doing what what I would call classic infrastructure projects. Yeah, so it was the you know the yeah, the big 
um, yeah, the big migrations, whether it's the, you know, kind of Nova, uh, you know, from Netware or to Exchange or just, you know, kind of the, you know, the periodic big refresh projects where, yeah, everyone's desktop gets replaced or, yeah, they're upgrading, uh, upgrading, you know, Windows or what have you. And, you know, if your project's on no scale, you have to automate, you know, there's no way you're going to, you know, kind of push out 500 desktops or thousands of desktops manually. Um, you know, and that was really what I you know, kind of worked on for the first few years, you know, after going into consulting. And then, you know, the company started doing more app dev. Uh, I'd been doing a bit of kind of IT security uh, work before I'd left. So I, that was my, um, you know, kind of how I first got involved in those sorts of projects as we were doing e-commerce projects, obviously kind of security is a concern there. Um, and, um, you know, it was kind of... After a few years, around kind of 2003, I think, um, I was working with Howard for the first time on a project, and he kind of introduced me. Yeah, you see this Howard from Ruin, I think it was an episode uh, six, six, seven, nine. Um, and he kind of introduced me to the concept of continuous integration. Um, and it really just kind of went went from there, really. And, you know, I did fewer and fewer infrastructure projects, but, yeah, kind of, saw that there wasn't, you know, kind of a huge amount of automation around both kind of the building of software, but also the deployment, and it was all very, um, yeah, kind of hit and miss and inconsistent and, you know, required someone, you know, to have, a bit, you know, virtually a whole understanding of the solution in order to be able to, you know, deploy the thing without it collapsing around your ankles. Um, and, yeah, that kind of started the, uh, you know, sort of the push from there, really, Um and then I guess, I guess you know, a couple of years ago, I kind of had this realization that um, we'd been putting all this automation onto the application side, yeah. But all the automation that we used to do on the infrastructure projects, yeah, we just weren't doing for these you know smaller development projects. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's an amount of work to do up front. Uh, you know. So, so for a large infrastructure project, you can kind of justify that, you know, sort of taking weeks and weeks, you know, of getting everything scripted, tested, tested, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, whereas, you know, because you're going to be pushing it out to hundreds, if not thousands of machines, whereas on a development project, you may be, you know, building a handful of test environments and, you know, a handful of servers. It was kind of difficult to justify, um, you know, sort of spending that, that amount of time. So I was kind of in this weird kind of situation where I kind of realized that I'd come full circle and suddenly the app dev was now kind of ahead of the infrastructure side, at least, you know, on, for a project side mm-hmm. of things. And, uh, and you know, it kind of got me in thinking around, well, what, what do we need to do? This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I think more and more uh, developers find themselves in this role as companies downsize and, you know, small businesses, certainly. Um, And if, you know, you're doing your one-man shop kind of thing, you certainly have both uh, your hand in both realms. But but even in larger corporations, you're seeing this this DevOps role expanding. Yeah, I mean, um, where I've... My kind of background, I was working with a business travel company and we were kind of putting on a business travel site actually on, online. So we had to kind of uh, tighten up the processes. So 
I came, I spent a lot of time actually trying to um, focus on getting the operation side um, more reproducible. Um, I hadn't, at uh, that point, actually kind of come across um, a way of actually um, automating that so you can start from as bare metal as you could. Um, you know, you could see where the, the um, developers, as James was saying, and that's just, I sort of totally agree with him, is that the developers had, you know, the continuous integration, um, they were producing their apps, they could just, just fling something out new without having to worry about, you know, all they had to worry about was us providing a, a fair service for us. But, but the problem there was actually providing them with a, a, a consistent platform to deploy to each time. Um, so it was, um, from my point of view, it was just kind of... Um, Interesting when I started to work with James to see some of the um, the ways you could resolve that particular situation. And now that now you've kind of jumped and we've got the cloud, and you're kind of it's second nature. It's um, in, in only a few years. Uh, it's quite exciting time. I'm still trying to settle in my mind exactly where the line of DevOps is. Is when you think about the continuous integration side of things, that seems to me still a very much a developer space topic that we're. We're checking in code. It's going direct into the build process, but that's not deployed. That's in at the testing level now. They're making a build. They're making sure the build works. Maybe there's some regression testing going on and so forth. But even after all that happens, it's handed off into some kind of QA process before it's actually going to be deployed. You know, doesn't DevOps yeah. come after computer, continuous integration? No, I, I disagree with that. I mean, DevOps covers, I, I'd say DevOps covers the whole end-to-end process i.e. everybody's got to be involved. And one of the one of the um, teams that seems to be forgotten in the whole DevOps thing is the fact that you need QA. You know, you do need somebody to kind of take 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 responsibility to make sure things are tested, either from the um the, the base platform or for the actual application. So I mean I I I'd have to disagree with that that um saying there's a line because there shouldn't be a line because everybody's working to the same goal. Yeah, I mean I think I think there are kind of two aspects to DevOps and you can either kind of focus on one or other or both. So, so the, first back, the first aspect is kind of this, it's a movement to encourage greater collaboration between you know, developers and operations or more broadly between projects and IT. Yeah, yeah, we've all, yeah, we've all experienced um, what happens when there's this uh, yeah, imaginary wall between a project and IT, and you, you, you know, one side does everything they need to do, and then they just toss it over the side, and then something lands, and uh, you know, they don't know what they've got, and you know, it just kind of just breeds and perpetuates this, uh, you know, this, you know, this fracture, I put it, uh, you know, between the two teams. So, so that's one part of it, which is actually just trying to break down this barrier and actually have you know, developers and operations people speak to each other in, you know, sensible, <laughs> sensible words. And then the other aspect of this is sort of like the movement within kind of the IT operations side, you know, to adopt you know, some of the practices which have kind of grown in the development world and kind of applying them to what they do day to day. Yes, this is like this concept of infrastructure as code. Um, yeah, we can put a link up to a uh, pretty good you know, sort of post about it. Um, which uh, guy called Jesse kind of Robbins um, had a pretty good description of it. The idea of this infrastructure as code is to enable the reconstruction of the business from nothing but a source code repository, an application data backup, and bare metal resources. And you know, as Grace says, you can kind of clearly see the resonance with, you know, with the cloud, pretty much kind of all you have anyway. But uh, you, so that kind of premise is um, is where some of the tooling, which which I guess we'll get onto later, but um, yeah, is kind of pushing to where rather than, you, you know, so if I look back at those big infrastructure projects we were doing in the past, we would... Yeah, sure. We'd have the scripts, and there would be automation, but they'd just be on a file share. You know, there was no, you know, there was no sense of putting those, uh, yeah, those scripts into source control. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, granted, maybe even back then, you know, source control wasn't even, yeah, you know, mainstream in, you know, typical, you know, enterprise development even. But, but, yeah, you know, it's that kind of principle. 
But you, I think your your key point here is this idea that there's more to operating an application than just getting it to compile. Yes. That things like the the deployment rules, where pieces have to go, how stuff connects together, what the security profiles are, those are the kinds of things that generally aren't captured in the source control. I don't know if they're captured anywhere. You know, I mean, I think uh, typically if they're captured anywhere, they're in a, you know, a 50-page deployment doc that some poor deployment engineer has to basically follow through step by step as his soul gets, you know, you know, sort of destroys, you know, with each, you know, with each tick box that he's filling in. Um, and, you know, with a whole bunch of manual steps because there's configuration which, you know, this works in dev, but it doesn't work in production or what have you. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of some of those practices, you know, it's sure to get, you know, the deployment, you know, we're still kind of blowing the line there, right? Because the, sure, the DevOps, folk are very interested in the deployment side because that's ultimately what what they receive from the project right so that you know they have a vested interest in making sure that you know whatever deployment approach is being used you know ideally will be consistent across all the projects so they're not having to learn different um you know kind of mechanisms you know between project a and project b um and that it's you know complete so they're not getting a yeah, kind of like an addendum of, oh, and you'll need to do this afterwards. Um, and that those packages actually work. So, you know, and that is, you know, I see that as being more in, you know, you were saying kind of firmly in kind of the application side. But, you know, as Grace was saying, by having that involvement at that level, it means, you know, the ops guys who, who ultimately kind of have, you know, to live, you with deploying these things into production, you know, can actually yeah, affect the shape of those, you know, those packages that, you know, are coming from the projects so that, you know, they align with the way they work and they're right. not, you know, just kind of, you know, <laughs> receiving something which, you know, is completely odds to the way they normally do you know, everything else in that job. Yeah, this sounds more like it's about developing a process for how do we get past a successful compile and, and, and the set of tests to the, you know, an automated deployment script. And I'm, I'm just throwing my, my run as radio hat on here because system center configuration manager is a product we talk about fairly often because it seems like that's the tool on the Microsoft side that you would hand that compiled app off to if it was going to do desktop deployment and push those hey, things I'll, I'll out. I'll just jump in here because the one of, one of the first um, attempts at actually um, kind of putting in DevOps that I came across was trying to use System Center Configuration Manager, and that was with a, a big, big talk um, deployment. Now, the problem with um, System Center Operation Manager is it's so complicated and basically just sucks up time. It actually, the amount of effort that was involved was kind of off-putting. Off Right. I mean, I lost a member. Of, I lost a member of staff for basically a year while he was trying to just get this thing working properly. Um, you know, there was no real buy-in. For, you know, there's this a 90-day lag for when a new update came out of of a product like BizTalk before you had to have the management patch. So we ended up hacking away, creating, updating our own. So the, the whole thing is, it's not just about the tools. Um, and if you are going to use tools, they've got to be relatively simple to use. Because, right. Um, unfortunately, the fact is is that a lot of operations um, staff just do not have the um, the skill set because they're not needed to, to be honest. You know, as James was saying, you'd have lots of bits of paper where people would have checkboxes, they'd run scripts, um, you know, but, you know, that what order you'd run the scripts wasn't important, you know, and that's, that's, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the tool sets um, later. So um, that is a good, it's a good set of tools, especially if you're a Microsoft house because, you, could, um, you know, people can get to use it, but it's far too complicated for what it's trying to do. Yeah, so systems that are configuration managed very much on the infrastructure side. The bit, the bit it won't do anything to help you with, it is, it'll help you push the packages out, but it will do nothing to help you in terms of building those packages. Yeah, so you know you'll still rely on the developers to produce a package, and actually, you know, probably has to be an MSI if you're using. Uh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but um, yeah, they. Yeah, I think the yeah, and that's kind of the critical sort of piece, really, because I think 
left left um, yeah to their own devices yeah in terms of what yeah a developer needs from a deployment package yeah in a lot of cases yeah they'll say they'll be happy with a zip right you know x copy deploy right you know it works absolutely fine um yeah meet you try and kind of push that into you know, a new environment yeah that's not going to contain you know all of the other kind of system level configuration which you know which you need um and to expect the dev teams to kind of produce a package that does all that and you know the more do it the same way is uh you know it's probably hoping for a little much i think but this does seem like something that's very automatable that if we just get down and have a conversation that says no actually i need you when you're ready to do a deployment build to build out an msi that's got everything in it so that i mean once you've set that up once for a given project it's not that big a deal to run it again and again yeah and yeah kind of one of the you sort of the ethos is always try and you know kind of shoe these things in terms of you know what's going on inside you know the development project you know it needs to be a build once deploy many so you know, what i mean by that is that you know, from any given build um you know, i'm going to get a deployment package of you know component x yeah but i should be able to take that package and push it into any environment and yeah there should be the plumbing you're either in the package or you know kind of the infrastructure that kind of facilitates your deployment to be able to you know, kind of transform that package so it's configured, you know, for wherever you're pushing it to. Right. And I, um, I think that's that's an interesting conversation that developers probably don't often have with operations guy, this idea that I'm not always pushing to a guy with the previous version. I'm sometimes pushing to new hardware. But, yeah, or, uh, yeah, or maybe I'm pushing to an environment, yeah, that has a completely different kind of physical architecture. You know, sure, in your test environment, you've got, one box, maybe two boxes, yeah, in, you know, in all the, you know, the sites and the services and the spaces all, you know, kind of, uh, you know, collected on there. But when I, you know, when I'm pushing into production, we've got, you know, we've got clusters and we've got, you know, um, you know load virtual addresses and all this sort of thing that, you know, that all affects, um, you know, the way the application needs to be configured right. in order to operate. And it, just to be clear here, I mean, I, I'm tending to talk about a desktop app, but I think you're mostly talking about web apps because in some ways I think the deployment for web apps is easier because it is just a set of servers and it's a, those are things always in the immediate control of ops. Uh, I've dealt with the battle of my load balancing gear and, and my clustering is different in ops than it is in test, which I think is a mistake that you've actually got to make that migration to con to the production style hardware before you actually go to production to know for sure that an app works correctly. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, you start getting your return from actually having ops folk involved in a project a lot earlier on because they will have that visibility into what the production platform you know, is going to look like, right. or they certainly should do if, you know, I would, you know, if your IT folk aren't involved in your projects at the point of where your production platform is being defined, then, you know, I'd say you've got a problem there, right? So, the, I mean, just to make clear here, you, you see the DevOps issue largely in the web deployment model and the major deployments to servers? So I, I was just saying, I, I kind of, Yes, the, the problem with the whole DevOps kind of um, label is the fact that it does seem to be focused on the deployment of web applications. Right. Um, but it also, that's not the case. It, 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 it applies to everything. So it applies to your, you know, your middleware, it'll apply to your desktop. In fact, I'd say that a lot of the, um, or some of the corporates tie down their desktops so much. In fact, it's, uh, it's actually much more controlled to deploy an application out to a desktop than it is in some cases to deploy it to a server, in my experience. You know, you've got things like Citrix, you've got, you know, you've, you've got the tie down your desktops, you've got um, RDP, you've got all these things that are already there to actually make your managing of your desktop um, a lot easier because there's so many more of them, you know, and there's people doing all sorts of things. So, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the only thing that's kind of, um, I'm finding slightly disappointing at the moment with the whole DevOps label is that it's kind of just been banded around when it, it should, banded around and misused. 
a certain extent, in my opinion, because it, it, I like the idea that it kind of identifies what I do or what I enjoy doing. But I don't like the idea that it's just kind of being, oh, it's, a, it's you know, there's always the fight that, oh, it's the developers trying to tell us ops guys how to do things or the ops guys trying to tell us devs how to do things. I mean, it's not about that. It's about right. being collaborative and working together across whatever you've got to deploy, whether it's servers or desktops. It's not a hard definition is what you're saying. No, it's not at all. You know, and I think we've got to get away from that. Well, in my experience, the best way to solve this problem usually involved pizza. Right. <laughs> and a few and a few pints of beer, of course. <laughs> yeah, two or three senior devs, a couple of senior ops guys, no management, and a couple of good pizzas, and you could generally hammer it out. I, I throw, I would throw in a network diagram, and you know, a couple other pieces of useful data, so that we could talk about how the environment this thing's actually going to run in, and you can usually get it done. Yeah, no, that that's unfortunately, there's too many people who are kind of seeing them. Like that, like a lot of people at the moment see the whole cloud revolution as being um, sort of um, affecting their livelihood. It's exactly the same thing with the DevOps movement. So, you know, I've gone in as a consultant and gone into a client site where there's these big silos, and they will do everything to keep those silos up because they're protecting their jobs. Right. You know, it's not so. You know, so that the, the problem you've got is that they, you know, they're, they're very traditional environments and. They've done things this particular way for so long. It's like, well, why should we change? You know, who are you to come in and tell us that we, we could be much more efficient, we could be agile, we can be doing all these things? And because, unfortunately, um, a lot of the um, terminology and the, the, the approach comes from the development environment, you know, like agile, agile approach, um, you know, being able to be prepared to fail fast, all of the sort of things that make DevOps, you know, a, a viable solution, a lot of it is kind of, especially to a lot of um, traditional infrastructure folks, just seen as like, you know, something totally they wouldn't even deal with. And, you know, they immediately shut off. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Well, I could see how clouds really changed, affected this dynamic. Because, you know, when the two teams don't get along, you come up with workarounds. In the old days... Oh, yeah, that's that's problem, yes. Yeah, I mean, just a few years ago... You had IT, we started outsourcing development and IT would get the code from an outsourced uh, place and they would work from there. And now you're seeing the reverse happening where developers are able to deploy their app directly to the cloud, never involve ops at all. No, I actually think that's a good thing. The reason I think it's a good thing because it's forcing them to change their habits. I actually think it's it's an enabler for change in so many ways. Because um, they've seen that people, um, because, because like the the people who keep saying no um, are seeing that people are going ahead and kind of going off, producing demos, impressing the CTOs, and the CTOs saying, I want this deployed. They suddenly realize they've got to work together. So it's actually good for the movement. I know it's in, in an ironic way. I think so, too, just in the sense that you're able to t- tell it. There's nothing more effective to an IT guy to make his job threatened and say, actually, I've successfully deployed that app and everybody's using it and you weren't involved at all. Ooh. And makes me wonder what it is you doing all day. Exactly. But, you know, as I said, I, I, I honestly believe it's actually for the good because, you know, um, I also feel quite strongly that a lot of people in the operations environment have been totally under, you know, undervalued, okay? So um, it's, it's good to make them step up to the plate. It's kind of, cause it's too easy just to float at that same level. So, you know, it's like they've got to step up, you know, because they realize if they don't step up, they're going to be left behind. There was a blog from a Forrester guy, uh, we can put a link, Mike, Mike Gaultieri, I think. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually coined it yet, but there's, uh, there's this whole kind of no-ops uh, phrase going around as well, and which is, uh, I, I, don't, I don't actually buy into it. To me. I mean, yeah, so they're basically talking about where you know, the cloud comes in and basically, you know, devs can push their stuff fine. Yeah, but I think, I think, Today, you know, certainly today, and probably for a while, that that is only going to be applicable to a subset 
of everyone out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what it has meant is that you kind of people who are you know kind of DevOps skeptic, if you like, um, have kind of latched onto that as well. And because it, I don't know, it sounds the same so clearly, they must yeah it must be from the same camps. Um, you know, kind of tying the two together and kind of use that as a way to kind of disparage what you know, DevOps is about, which I think is, you know, isn't helpful, to be honest. And actually, a lot of you know, the people in on kind of DevOps side would not, don't necessarily view NoOps as a, you know, place to go. I mean, I sort take Grace's point in the terms of a, uh, you know, a means to an end, yeah, but you know all these, you know these, uh, you know, sort of App Harbor and Heroku and things. Like, yeah, you know, they're all fantastic. Yeah, but for a very, I won't say niche, but yeah, you know, for a small percentage of scenarios, works absolutely great. Yeah, but for um, you know, if we're talking about trying to up the game more broadly across all of. Um, the development space, then you know, we need to kind of have these sorts of things in place you know, within enterprises who aren't um, you know, able or willing you know, to move everything you know, to the cloud. Um, speaking of like, DevOps skeptics, there's some interesting blogs on this guy's site called itskeptic.org. There's a couple. He, he's very you know, kind of anti-DevOps in some respects. You know, he sees it as, uh, as, as you know, the good parts of DevOps as not being anything new. Uh, yeah, he's very much more from you know, sort of the IT service management and kind of ITIL side of things, although he is you know, sort of fairly critical of, you know, of kind of ITIL done, done bad as well. But, um, you know, the blogs are fairly kind of inflammatory, and I'm sure he kind of chooses to... Uh, you know, some of that you know, to generate interest, but you know, he raises some kind of interesting arguments, and then others, you know, are kind of less less valuable. What 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 did really strike me is I just see a lot of similarities in terms of the way that you know the traditional infrastructure folk are responding to DevOps is very similar to the way that the you know, waterfall folk you know responded to agile. You know, it's the same old men arguments coming out that oh well you know agile is all about it's not about having any documentation any spec it's all cowboys um yeah and it doesn't it doesn't really scale you know beyond a small team that certainly as you grow to do on enterprise level it is more challenging definitely but um yeah the idea that agile is synonymous with you know just doing a slapdash job is just kind of rubbish i think we'd kind of gotten perhaps almost to the point where, you know, that had been put to bed when talking about Agile, but, yeah, the same kind of ethos is now being kind of applied, you know, to DevOps. Um, But I think where those kind of traditional guys are coming from, you know, why does a company, you know, implement ITIL, for instance? Um, And I guess if you kind of accept that, you know, any kind of you know, commercial organization is about, you know, the things that, you know, the two key things they need to do as like a company, I guess, to kind of generate value and then kind of protect that value. Yeah. So if you kind of accept that, you can kind of then kind of equate those two sides and say, well, you know, so IT is more about the protecting and uh, you, you sort of the project side of things is about, you know, kind of, you know, building the features that are going to generate the revenue. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a generalisation. Could you could you know, for companies that you know, are running, uh, you know, are running, you know, uh, like say software as a service, then you know the guys that are keeping that up and running are you know, kind of bringing in revenue as well. But um, you kind of see how the two camps you know, kind of align to saying, well, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing. So, you know, it's, again, it's the age-old uh, you know, kind of issue of IT wanting to protect what's there and they don't want to destabilize it, and it's that that, you know, that kind of builds that, that no mentality. And as well, you know, if we can 
um, you know, kind of limit change, then, you know, that's good because if we know if it's stable now, if we don't change anything, it should stay stable. Well, and I would defend IT by saying in the end, when it goes down, we get in trouble. So, you know, change is dangerous. You know, most IT folks say change is good. You go first. Because I don't want to be, I catch, I catch trouble when stuff breaks. When I do my job perfectly as an IT guy, nobody could tell I'm invisible. Yeah, it's only exactly. when it breaks that you notice. That's why I used to shut off servers in the middle of the day, so people would phone me. I was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and it works every time. You remind everybody, hey, I do something around here. It is also the fact of, like, compliance, okay? So, um... Another reason that guys tend to be very reluctant within um, some of the larger corporates is because they've got a big compliant with PCI, because so that's kind of an easy one to kind of kind of look at, where they're talking about things like a um, separation of duties. Yeah. Now, when you start talking about um, DevOps, in, if you like, in the, the holy grail, where, you know, there is just this DevOps-type person, you know, they're not dead, they're not operations, they straddle both. Um, and you've then got to actually comply with, with with this statement that says you've got to be able to separate duties, you've got to separate developers from operations, it then starts getting quite tricky. So, you know, I'm, I, I, admittedly I like the fact that it's, it's a means to a change, but there's also things, there's stuff that's like written down in stone that we've got to get over and work out how you can actually do the agile development, the continuous deployment, um, allow them... That allowed to get past this developer operations, you can only it can only be you know as James says, chuck it over the wall and operations deploy it, right? Um, so, and still manage to comply with some of these regulations that have that basically have statements in there that kind of like go against the grain. So yes, um, um, I also hear what you guys are saying about the fact that change can cause problems, but the fact is that we're now in in the 21st century, whereas if you don't change, you start losing business. Well, we ended up with a PCI compliance guy as part of QA, and apps got sent back for more dev work. They didn't pass muster when they couldn't comply with the PCI guy. He That was his job, was to figure that out and to make sure we'd done it right, and then educate the devs when they'd done it wrong, and we'd go again. You know, it's it's no yeah, different yeah, than I mean, you than you misspelled on a dialogue, or you you know not recording data properly. You're not PCI compliant. Yeah, and you know, I mean that you know, it's just a good example of how pushing, you know, kind of specialist people close to the development process can capture those things earlier in the cycle when it's not such a pain in the ass to do anything about. It. And that, you know, for me, that's. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't apply the same principle and have you know kind of an ops guy there saying, you know, yeah, you know, there's no way that we'll be able to monitor this, or you know, um, you know, the way this thing's deployed, you know, isn't going to fit, you know, and actually, you're kind of catching it there. It's no good catching it once it's gone through UAT or right. or you know, as it's no, going into UAT okay. where. Yeah, you know, kind of. You're already kind of on this, uh, you know, this railway track to going live, where it's difficult to stop the train. When um, I, and I appreciate James, you're going down. You're talking about something that's something beyond deployment now. The why do I have ops involved at the design point? Because it's ops that brings forward. I'm going to have to audit. I have to be compliant. Those sorts of things become requirements in the app. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think just the. Going quickly back to saying, for instance, in terms of some of the criticisms, either camp, you know, can produce these great examples, you know, of, you know, we probably all can ourselves of where, you know, we've been wanting to do something on a project and IT has said no, and there's, you know, and that's just been it kind of in a conversation. And it just, you know, it's like, well, okay, thanks. And, you know, and then on the other side, you kind of have where you've got IT having to put up with, just yeah, you know, just a complete pile of cack arriving in their lap that right. you know they've haven't you know they haven't seen hide nor hair of until until this and they're supposed to do something with it. You know the reality is is there are extremes on either side which are not acceptable. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, you blame the execution; it's not the process. So you know it's easy to say I don't use IT; it's heavyweight, it's bloated, it's inflexible. You know. I don't profess to be any expert, but um, yeah, the reality is, is there are good practices inside it, 
but you can still implement it really poorly and you can still use it as a crutch to kind of not not do anything yeah, in the same way that you can maybe adopt a more agile methods as a reason to, uh, you know, to skimp on things that you don't enjoy doing. Yeah, but if you do either of those properly, then, you know, you're probably going to be okay. You, you know, when people say, oh, we're dumping ideas, you know, it didn't work, or, you know, we're dumping you know, agile, what have you, normally when you dig a little deeper, it's not it's not because there's some systematic flaw in either of those processes is because you're not doing it properly. right yeah and switching to something else is not it amazes me the number of people who oh yeah we're gonna you're gonna and we're gonna do y and it's like well you weren't doing x properly in the first place what what on earth makes you think that you're capable of doing y uh, and I, I was thinking exactly the thing you were saying there which is that people abuse itil the same way that people abuse agile like they think, you know, Agile comes in a spray can. If we just squirt it all over the devs, we'll be Agile. You know, it is a process and it, there's a bunch of different techniques and you've got to actually apply it well. ITIL is the equivalent on the op side. It's a set of processes that have to be applied well. And I've met plenty of folks who say, oh, yeah, whatever we're doing ITIL. Look, it's right over here on the wall. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, so we, I think we hit a couple of different angles on DevOps. Talk, certainly, it seems like deployment is the biggest issue, how we hand off cleanly from a de- development test cycle into what is going to be production-worthy. Uh, are there other elements that you see as part of the DevOps movements, other communication paths or goals? Well, so, so I think, think on the application side, you know, it tends to be more focused around you know, the things you're talking about. Um, and then on that, you know, that kind of infrastructure as code, which is more around, you know, kind of, you know, it's really, is, it's more internal, you know, to the ops team, really. It's, you know, it's about how they're managing, you know, the stuff they have to do day, you know, day to day, whether that's sort of provisioning new systems or, you know, or monitoring existing systems. Um, and what, what we're seeing is there's a whole bunch of tooling um, which is kind of coming out and really being adopted by the movement, I think in some cases, you know, it kind of predates when, like, yeah, cause as you would expect, you, you, know, you know, DevOps isn't anything new per se. It, right. You know, it's all these good practices, which, you know, a lot of people have been doing, um, but, but perhaps with more, you know, kind of homegrown, um, you know, solutions. But, you know, we've seen the things like Puppet and Chef, which are kind of system configuration management tools coming out of the open source world. You know, obviously you've got these kind of commercial things we've kind of talked about. They're not, you know, they're not really solving the same problem. And in a lot of cases, they're really not applicable to the smaller shops. You know, um, if not on like a cost basis, then just you know, the you know, time to implement or the training or anything like that. And you know, um, you know, they're certainly not. You're kind of geared towards this infrastructure as code. It's all, you know, kind of more heavier weight um, kind of systems behind it. And these aren't tools necessarily for the Microsoft platform either, right? This is no. But I mean, um, just going to jump in there quickly. So um, I hear what James is saying, but um, there are ways around um, the, you know, the, the, the open source tools like say Chef, and you know, I am a big fan of Chef. And what I went down Chef's route rather than the Puppet route was because it was more Windows friendly because to be really honest, there's just not enough stuff out there for Windows. And um, you know, James has got an interesting project coming here, which he's working on. That I'm looking forward to seeing the output from. Um, but what the, the the issue you've got is the fact that you've got these, um, and I agree with James that these solutions are quite complicated. But there are services to help them. You know, I know they're small shops, um, but someone's everyone's got to start somewhere, and a lot of them kind of give you free free help to start off with. Right get you up, up and running. And there's a lot of stuff out there that's ready to roll. So, you know, from Chef, you can start off with, with nothing and have your actual application deployed end-to-end. Obviously, you've got to have the source control to get the code. You've got to have a build server and all that sort of thing. And the problem isn't any of these individual solutions, whether it's configuration management or the build server or anything, but it's the fact that all of them require some understanding, you know, so you, you can't kind of separate them all out. So I wouldn't pick on the configuration management tool alone as being that difficult because I'd say, well, working with a, um, a tool like TFS or Team City, 
can also be quite awkward for a, for a very small shop. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like saying, you need to like, let's take a step back and say, there's two spectrums. There's a smaller shops who've got, you know, they haven't got the, the resources to do that kind of stuff. And then you've got the corporates at the other end who are happy in their world at the moment and kind of slowly moving and changing. So it's like trying to, trying to kind of bridge that massive gap so that you can get everybody along the same road. But, you know, it's just a, it's an interesting journey. Yeah, not a simple set of problems, but guys, I really appreciate yeah. the the links and the, it seems like we have a ways to go on the Microsoft side of things to try and make this simpler. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of my my sort of thing at the moment, really. You know, I mean, think from both on there's yeah, as Grace says, Chef Chef has increasingly good Windows support, and for any you know for any you know kind of shop that you know is cross platform. You know, it's kind of no brain to go that route. Um, but for those um, shops that are purely Windows, you, uh, 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 um, you know, even then, Chef kind of has some you know some hosted versions where you don't need to worry about you know, kind of running the infrastructure to support it. Um, you just need to learn the tool, and you know, certainly no problem with that. But even now, I think there's still a subset of people. Uh, yeah, I wrote about it in a blog post, which, which kind of kick-started this whole you know, thing that Grace was talking about. Um, you know, for whom, you know, they just, you know, they need, you know, they need all of it to be able to run on Windows. So, like, for instance, Chef, Chef has a server component, you know, and a client component. Yeah, the client component supports Windows, and they're doing loads to kind of uh, you know, kind of improve, you know, sort of PowerShell support and things like that. But yeah, ultimately, kind of the server side has to run on Linux, and you know, for some, whether or not you kind of agree with their reasons for them not wanting to go that way, you know, it's just a showstopper for them. Um, but it would be nice to think that you know all those people could be, you know, would have an option where they can take that first. You know, we talk about kind of configuration management, and you know, there are other you kind of tools, but it. On kind of the IT side, it does feel like the logical first step, you know, to getting, um, you know, sort of, you know sort of under control. You know, if you can't, you know, kind of build your servers and environments in a, you know, sort of repeatable, you know, like consistent way, then, you know, that's your, your sort of foundations for everything else. Um, but I, I just think where, where this has worked kind of really well on projects that we've been involved in, you know, is where I have a notion of kind of uh, how it would be nice if, say, the development teams, for example, behaved in terms of, you know, what I really want as the person that kind of has to take this is some kind of, you know, consistent package um, format mechanism, you know, for handling the configuration of those things, um, you know, from all the teams and whether or not they're doing the same or different things. Um, uh, yeah, and there tends to be kind of two sort of approaches for it, right? You know, sort of carrot or stick. You know, you either say, you must do this or I'm not going to accept it. And, right. you know, you either get away with it or you just get told to pull your neck in and, you know, just deal with it. Or you can take the carrot stick where you say, well, look, um, what, what is, if you understand the pain that kind of developers already have, you know, in terms of, well, you know, so what you know, about deployment is a pain? Well, maybe it's a lot of, you know, kind of manual, you know, crafting. It's like, well, if we can kind of provide you with a tool that eases some of your pain points, oh, and by the way, you know, if you do this, then it's, you know, it's basically doing what we want you to do. You, you, you know, people are generally inclined to do the easiest thing, right? So, so if you make the right thing the easiest thing, then everyone wins. Um, and you can only really do that by, you know, by, you know, by putting in some, you know, some tooling. It doesn't have to be, you know, it could just be kind of homebrewed stuff. But, you know, the key thing is that it's kind of consistent. Yeah, so if all you know, your, your projects can kind of have some kind of common build process and it's, you know, doing the same things and it's producing the packages in the same 
format, you've got a common approach for how you're going to manage all these configuration differences between environments. Again, it doesn't have to be high tech, it might just be, you know, simple, you know, kind of sets of name value pairs for all the bits of the configuration that you know need to change. You're just storing it for each environment, you know, in an XML file or something. Something that you can then, you know, kind of suck in at the deployment time, process it and use it, um, you know, to do what you need to do. So, um, yeah, that's the sort of things we were doing, you know, kind of on our projects before. And, you know, that's, so that's one, uh, you know, another kind of side project involved with, uh, with guys at Engine, um, which is around trying, uh, you know, looking to see if we can, you know, kind of come up with some kind of standardized build process and way of deploying and, you know, managing configuration, not, because a lot of the tools that are out there, TFS gives you a kind of standardized sort of build process, and if you can live with you know, with what it does, then you don't really need to touch it. Um, but you know, a lot of the other you sort of continuous integration tools, they're more around the server rather than and enabling you to be able to run these processes and manage them, not about what those processes are, um, you know, and much less around ensuring that that process gives you something that you know it can actually deploy james and grace we're running out of time Uh, so uh i'd like to thank you even though it was a little over my head and uh, not my realm (laughs) i was happy to to uh help uh bring this information to our listeners so thank you very much Uh, thank you thank you for having us all right and uh thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on dotnet .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.